Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a platform that provides access to worldwide life sciences expertise and is the place to discover, build, and manage on-demand life science teams. I'm excited to welcome Ron Cohen, President and CEO of Accorda Therapeutics. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ron. My pleasure, Rahul. Excellent. So to start off, we'd love to learn about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. Well, I'll try and keep it as concise as I can. I started out professionally as a physician, a doctor of internal medicine, and had always had a dual ambition, which competed with that ambition, and that was to be an actor. And I had been in plays and musicals ever since first grade. So it was a toss-up after college. If I was going to medical school or acting school, I took the easy way out, and I went to medical school. Then I did my residency in internal medicine, loved it, loved medicine. I came from a medical family. My dad was a neurologist at Columbia Medical Center for many decades. And I returned to New York at that time after my residency and began to practice medicine. But I decided at that time that I was going to regret it if I did not exercise my other passion. And so I pursued a dual career for about five years in which I was taking acting classes and auditioning, doing commercials, doing off-off-Broadway, and doing student films at NYU Film School while I was working as a doctor in urgent care centers, in emergency rooms, and then eventually as the medical director of a walk-in office, a fee-for-service office, but I was able to tailor my schedule so that I wasn't working five days a week, 10 hours a day, and I could still pursue the acting career. And in the middle of all that, serendipity stepped in, and a couple of friends from medical school at Columbia, where I went to medical school, who were married to each other, called me one day and asked me to meet with a friend of theirs and her husband, both PhDs, who had just left NYU to start a biotech company based on their research, which had to do with tissue engineering. They were growing human bone marrow, multi-lineage bone marrow in vitro, and they had ambitions to use that as a platform for bone marrow transplantation, and then to grow other organ tissues for transplantation like skin or liver. So they had started a company and they had asked my friends to find a doctor who knew about clinical medicine because they were PhDs. And specifically, they wanted a doctor who could present well and who had presentational skills. So my friends called me because they thought, well, he's an actor, so he can present well, and he's a doctor. So I thought it was really improbable, but simply because I was open to anything, I decided I would meet with these scientists, not intending at all to do this. I met with them for about a half day. They had rented a little office on 33rd Street and 3rd Avenue in Manhattan. The entire company was four people. It was the two scientists. It was a nurse who they had hired to do bone marrow pulls. So they had bone marrow to work with and an investor, an angel investor who was a dentist from Albany, New York. He was actually a friend of the family. So he was putting in the upfront capital. Ultimately, 
he put in about a million dollars and had mortgaged his house twice to do it. So that's quite remarkable. Sidebar, he wound up with stock that eventually was worth about $60 million and he became a venture capitalist. (laughs) (laughs) So I met with them. And when I was done, the woman, her name was Gail. She was really the entrepreneurial force in the company. Her husband was the lab person primarily. And she took me into the office and she said, well, what do you think? And we were sitting across a little desk from each other. And I said, the science is fascinating. They showed me electron micrographs of their bone marrow cultures. It looked for all the world like a human bone marrow specimen. It was really remarkable. And this was back in 1986. So it was really remarkable in that sense. And I said something like, well, it's fascinating. She said, great. I want you to work with me just like that. And I said something like, well, I'm really flattered. Thanks. Why don't we talk next week or something? I had no intention of doing this. And she pointed at me, literally pointed at me from across the desk and said, you don't understand. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, I want you to work with me. And she opened the drawer, pulled out a piece of paper and slid it across the desk at me. And I looked at it. It was typed all the way down. It was an employment agreement. I started reading it and I thought, this is so strange. And I looked at her and I said, wait a minute, my name is typed in this. When did you type it? I've been with you all morning. She said, I typed it last night. I said, (laughs) you didn't know me last night. And she said, yeah, but our friends, Peter and Martha, who put us together, sent me two VCR tapes. If you remember VCR tapes, two VCR tapes of you on TV. And based on that, I knew we had to work together. It was so strange. And I just sat there and I recall quite literally feeling my entire life to that point running backwards in front of my brain like a movie reel. And I have no idea what came over me. But in the moment, I looked at her, I looked at the document, and I said, okay, and I signed. And that is how I got into biotech. So help me. Do you remember what the VCR tapes, what role you were playing in those VCR tapes? Uh, (laughs) Yes, I do. One of them was the role of a doctor because it was, in fact, a newsreel from a local news station, Channel 5 News in New York. This is back in the day. These days, they're all over the place. These private, we called them dock in the boxes, you know, these private fee-for-service storefront medical establishments. Back then, it was a completely new concept. And the reporter picked mine and came in to do a human interest story about these clinics. So I was the medical director. I I was wearing my white coat and my stethoscope and the camera followed me examining patients and being interviewed. So that was one part of my life. The second one, I was a contestant on Jeopardy, which had also been on my bucket list, as it were. And I finally got on Jeopardy. I was on for three episodes and they had broadcast it a couple of weeks before my interview with Gail. I didn't know my friends had recorded it, but they sent that to her as well. Certainly one of the more unique, uh, how did you get to where you are today, responses that we've had on here. (laughs) I imagine. So from there, I joined this little nothing company. I was the fifth person involved with this company. And after a few months, by the way, the dentist investor came to me and said, Ron, we have to let you go. And I said, why, Herb, am I doing a bad job? He said, no, you're doing a great job. 
Although how he knew I was doing a great job was beyond me since we were winging everything we did at the time. And he said, I just can't afford to pay your salary. And without even thinking about it, I said, oh, oh, that, that's okay. I'll work for free. Because at that point, I was so taken with this whole notion of starting a company in medicine and advancing medical science and new medicines for patients that that was just the natural response. However, I was so naive. I didn't even think to ask for stock in the company. I just said I'd work for free until they could pay me again. And then I went back to working emergency rooms because I could work two 24-hour shifts a week and pay for the rent, pay for everything, and still come to work for this company. So that's what I did for another two and a half years. And I was still sort of doing the acting on the side. That was my life for the next two and a half years. And eventually we went public in a very early stage. I'll call it a public venture capital deal. This was with the old D.H. Blair. If you know the history, they were a very specialized investment bank at the time, and they dealt with penny stocks. And we were trying to get funding. And by that time, we had brought in a CEO who had been a senior executive at Eli Lilly, who was really very good. And so we decided we were going to do this. So we raised all of $6 million less fees in this IPO. And we went public in 1988. And by the way, we were supposed to go public in 1987, about five days after the great stock market crash of 1987. And so we had that massive crash, couldn't go public, had to fend for ourselves for another year. Eventually the window opened, we were able to get out. So we got this money. Our CEO who lived in San Diego moved us to San Diego and we built the company from there. And that was really where I cut my teeth on startup biotech. And ultimately I spent six and a half years with that company. I was one of the three principal leaders of the company. I was on the board of directors. We had three of us as inside directors. We ultimately, by the time I left, had raised well over $100 million. We had about 110 employees. By that time, we were actually manufacturing a human cultured dermis skin in vitro that we were selling to cosmetics and drug companies as alternatives to rabbit eye tests because you could test on human skin tissue. And ultimately, after I left, that product became FDA approved for healing diabetic skin ulcers. So I was running nationally trials of that skin product for burn victims initially. And it, ultimately, it didn't work for burns, but they got it approved for diabetic skin ulcers. So I had all kinds of experience. And of course, starting with five people, four people in the company, I got to do almost every job. I was under the hood in the lab if I had to be. I was doing investor and public relations. I was writing all the annual reports and all the press releases. I was running clinical regulatory quality. And of course, I didn't know anything about those things. I hired people who then I learned from as we went along. So it was all doing it by the seat of our pants every single day, making it up as we went along. And it was exciting. It was exhilarating. It was frustrating. And I went five and a half years with no vacations, working weekends, occasionally taking a Sunday off and maybe a Thanksgiving day. And I didn't care. It was so exhilarating. That's what you did. 
I left after about six and a half years. Part of it was that I'd burned out. And there were other issues that I just felt I had done what I could there. And it was time for me to take a break. And so very much the way I had come, which was to sit in front of Gail. And when she said, you don't understand, I want you to sign here. And I signed in the moment. In the moment, I knew it was time for me to move. I didn't know what I was going to do. I wound up taking a year sabbatical, which is one of the greatest things I ever did, and which I would recommend to pretty much anyone at some point in your career. If you can afford to do it or find a way to afford to do it, take time off because it was the first time in my life since first grade that I had no commitments whatsoever for a full year. And I read liberally across many subjects, business literature. I taught myself accounting with a business school textbook and the answer book. I didn't have the answer book. I couldn't find it. Turned out the professor lived in San Diego who wrote the book. I called him up and said, hey, do you have an answer book? He said, sure, I'll send it to you. So, you know, it's just part of that entrepreneurial, just figure it out, find a way or make one, which is one of the mottos of our company, by the way, in our company culture. I taught myself, well, I tried to learn Italian. That didn't go as well. And then I explored all kinds of things that were interesting to me. I had papers that I'd collected for years that I had never organized. I organized them into loose leaf binders with labels, read through everything, took notes. It was an enriching, integrating, clarifying year for me. And in the course of that, one day, I found myself in the San Diego Medical School, UCSD Medical School Library. And I say I found myself there because I actually don't recall having made an affirmative decision to go there and do what I wound up doing. I was almost in a fugue state because something had grabbed me. And what had grabbed me was the idea of nerve regeneration in the brain and spinal cord. Part of that may have been that in the beginning of my sabbatical, I took a six-week trip to Europe with a backpack. I had never even done that before. And my girlfriend, who's now my wife, had been a world traveler already. And she had said to me, you're taking too much weight because I had about 90 pounds of backpack for six weeks. She said, it's too much. You should be less than half of that. And I said, I'm big and strong. It's okay. I came back and promptly herniated a disc, wound up having my calf muscle paralyzed for several weeks. And in that experience, I was terrified. It was just one calf muscle and it completely changed my life. It changed my ability to work out. It changed my ability to walk. It changed my ability to do the things I wanted to do, even to drive. I think that fed into this eventually where I was looking up nerve regeneration and I spent three days and three nights, most of three nights at the library, had a stack of photocopies from journals. And I was reading obsessively, taking notes, came out of that, went back to my girlfriend. And a couple of days later, we were eating dinner at a restaurant. And I remember her looking at me at one point, we had nice champagne and we were waiting to be served. And she looked at me, she said, what just happened? And I said, what do you mean? And I knew exactly what had just happened, but I had no idea that she knew. She said, the look in your eyes, she said, I've never seen that before in real life. She said, the only way I can explain it 
is, you know, those cartoons where one of the characters has an idea and a light bulb appears above their head. That's what your eyes looked like. And I said, wow, that's remarkable because I know what I'm going to do. And she said, what? And I heard the words come out of my mouth. There was so much hubris in them that I was amazed to hear them. And I said, I'm going to cure spinal cord injury. And I set out on a mission from that day forward. I spent about a year and a half going to every meeting, meeting 60 of the leading scientists in the field of nerve regeneration and myelination and spinal cord injury and what have you, meeting them at their posters at the meeting, calling them up and visiting them at their labs and proposing to them that I was going to start a company that was going to work on nerve regeneration, starting with spinal cord injury, but then extending into other neurological diseases. And to my amazement, virtually all of them said, you know, outside of our field, it's not well known yet, but we're already growing nerves back in animals. It is time to translate this into humans. And so I asked 10 of them to join me as a scientific collaborating group. And I got my inspiration during my sabbatical because among the things I read were the New England Journal paper on how the Huntington's disease gene was found. It was the first major disease gene that was identified. This was Nancy Wexler and Alan Tobin who had spearheaded a 10-year odyssey with also about nine labs, leaders in the nascent field of genetics, which at that time, there just wasn't anything. You're talking about the 1980s. And they published in the early 90s that this gene had been found. So I went to visit Nancy and Alan and said, how did you bring these big name scientists together and big ego scientists and get them to work together so effectively for 10 years. And they said, well, look, what we did was, first of all, we played to everyone's strengths. And at no time did anyone get a grant bigger than $50,000 a year from our foundation. And we used the carrot and stick approach. And we came up with principles for how you manage conflicts and so on. And they said, we wrote them down here. And they gave me their Bible of how you do it. And I read a book called The Making of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. I think it was about 600 pages. It was huge. And the essence of that story is how the United States beat Germany to the atomic bomb. And ultimately, it was one of the greatest collaborations among government, industry, and academia that has ever existed, maybe the greatest one. And it was no single lab or area that came up with it. It was this massive collaboration, and it was run by Leslie Groves, who was a military guy. So I was inspired by all that because what I saw at my first company, which was called Advanced Tissue Sciences, was that we were constantly trying to stay ahead of the reaper because you didn't have any revenue, you didn't have a product, you didn't know if or when you were going to have a product, but what you had was massive fixed costs and constant outflow of money and the need to replenish it. So you spent a huge amount of your time and effort just raising money rather than doing the actual work. I was inspired by Nancy and Alan's project and the atomic bomb project to think, could you start a biotech company as a virtual company? Back then, 
it was almost not heard of. There wasn't such a thing. There may be a couple of efforts here and there. So we were one of the first virtual companies and we ran it virtually for five years. And the way we did it was I had all of these great scientists. We would get together. I would sponsor the meetings periodically. There was no Zoom. So these were in person or on telecom. And we would discuss what's new in the field. What technology can we in license? Who's got the best assays? And I would take whatever money I was raising from investors, which was angel investors. First couple of years, I raised $2 million after I couldn't fund it myself anymore. And we would put it in their labs. And then we would get together periodically and review. And it was very iterative. And then one day, one of the scientists asked, hey, have we ever looked at this molecule for aminopyridine? And it turned out that a couple of us had looked at it, but we didn't take it very far because we ran into a few roadblocks. So that rekindled the conversation. And in short, it led to us in licensing a patent for the use of foraminopyridine in spinal cord injury. And we began to develop it for that. And we still were trying to raise money. And then we did a deal with another company, Elan, that was working on the same molecule, but for multiple sclerosis. They weren't working on spinal cord injury. We had a patent on spinal cord injury. So they had developed a formulation that was a sustained release formulation that you could give twice a day. And they agreed to do a deal with us to allow us to develop it for spinal cord injury. And in the process, they put $4 million into the company. Once we had done that, the venture capitalists became interested. And for those of you out there who are trying to raise money or plan to raise money, let me tell you that in our case, it takes a lot of shoe leather and a lot of knocking on doors. I have a favorite cartoon, which is entitled the entrance to the venture capital office or the venture capital office. It's a door and it has a welcome mat, but it's the exit door. <laughs> and that's your experience. I will tell you that my acting experience really served me well, because what do you do in acting? You audition constantly and you almost never get the part. That's what it's like going to venture capitalists. I believe I saw about 70 venture capitalists over about a year and a half telling my story, improving my story, using their feedback to improve my story, but not getting a deal. And then I took another year of trying to build the company and make progress. And then once we did the deal with Elon, we went back to pretty much the same 70 venture capitalists, literally again, 70. It took us over a year and this time it worked. So if you think about what it took, it was almost 150 presentations over a three and a half year period to get to a $25 million venture capital round. And that's when we were able to get a laboratory and a facility, hire people and move forward. And Ron, so lots to unpack here. For those of us that are not actors or haven't had formal acting training, but pitched to VCs, what are some tips that you would provide from your acting days to entrepreneurs? I don't know that the acting per se was helpful or how helpful it was. The experience of auditioning was certainly helpful because that toughens you up for what's to come when you go up to a venture capitalist. I would say that the thing that I thought was the most valuable to do was when I got rejected, which was almost always, I would ask why. And I would say, can you help me understand how I can pitch this better or what's missing in the story for you? And most of them would tell you. 
so I never took the attitude that I knew best or that these people were idiots because they couldn't see the genius of it all. Quite the opposite. It was more that I felt that I had a really important idea, but that they had all the experience and all the knowledge about things that would make it viable. And I ought to listen and solicit that feedback. So I would do that all the time. And I will tell you that the difference in my presentation, I look back on the early presentations now versus what we eventually had, and it's embarrassing. It makes me cringe. Because with my eyes today, I can look at it the way they were looking at me across the table. It was very naive, but that's how you learn. And that's how you, you build it up. So I would say, if you're out there pitching an idea, obviously you need to be as clear as possible. If you're not that great at writing or putting slideshows together, find a friend or a colleague or someone who will. In the beginning, I needed lawyers. I needed business consultants. I needed people who knew how to write business plans. You know what I did? I didn't have the money. I gave them all stock and they accepted it at that time. So you find a way and you figure it out as you go along. I would say the thing I learned is number one, be passionate about your idea. If it's intellectually interesting to you, but you're not actually passionate about it, you don't wake up thinking, oh my gosh, how am I going to get this done today? I must get this done today. It doesn't motivate you in that way. It's more of an intellectual interest. Don't do it because it's too hard. It's too hard. And by the way, it's always too hard. In this business, it never gets easy. It gets different. And sometimes the challenges seem to be easier for a while. But if you look at the arc of Accorda, what you see is we went the first 15 years without getting our own approval on a product. We did, as a strategic matter, in-license our first commercial product from our collaborator, Elan, because they had kind of a throwaway. It was a drug for spasticity called Xanaflex capsules. But by the time they got it approved, the regular generic tablets had been generic for years. And so they would have been launching it into a completely generic market without a differentiated label. And we said, fine, we'll take it. We'll start being commercial with this product. And that was after two phase three studies failed in spinal cord injury and one phase two study in multiple sclerosis failed for our lead product for aminopyridine. So we needed to do something other than go out of business. We wound up getting this commercial product, hiring a commercial person. We started selling it with 10 salespeople for the whole country. Ultimately, we built that into $60 million a year, $60 million a year, which nobody thought we were going to be able to do. So by the time we got through our setbacks and got what became Ampira approved in 2010, we had already been commercial in neurology for five years at a small scale. But all we had to do at that point was double the sales force. We, at that point, we had 50 salespeople, 52. We doubled to 100 and we were off and running and ultimately built that product over the next eight years into a $600 million run rate at the time that a court overturned our patents in 2018, and we had generic competition. That was going the full circle from my second bedroom with a laptop and an idea, all the way to a $2.5 billion company with $600 million run rate of revenue by September of 2018, 
now to where we are today, which is rebuilding and three restructurings later, where we've gone from 650 people to about 150 people, where we've gone from a rich pipeline and nine drugs that we put in the clinic to no development right now because our major job is to get our newest product that did get approved right after we went generic with Empira. It's called Imbresia, and it's a terrific drug for an inhaled levodopa for people with Parkinson's disease. And we are putting all of our effort into building that up into a sizable product that can carry the company. And there are all sorts of challenges that go along with that. So you see the arc here is, if you think about people who are in theater and film, it's the same idea. What they say is you're never really on the top. You're never really at the top because you get to what looks like the top and you win the Academy Award. And a few years later, no one ever heard of you. And they can go that way. So biotech is like that. And you constantly have to be vigilant. You constantly have to be resilient and take the challenges as they come. Try to build in whatever contingencies you can, knowing that you will make mistakes along the way. And you just have to trust that your passion for what you're doing will carry you through. And that is what we do at our company. Without the passion, and it's not just me, certainly, we have a whole company full of people who are turned on by this idea that you can take science out of the lab, put it in the clinic, and improve our fellow human beings' lives. We're passionate about it. You have to be or you can't put up with the rest of it. Great, Ron. It seems like it's been a winding road at Accorda with lots of ups and downs, which I think is inherent in the business of biotech. would love to learn how you've applied some of your own enthusiasm for Accorda and the value proposition to patients in keeping your team engaged. Because for a variety of reasons, many biotechs will have lots of failed assets for many reasons. And so curious how you balance the energy of your team and continue to keep them motivated. It starts with the culture. This is a truism. Obviously, lots of people talk about it. I'm here to say that it may be a truism, but for a good reason, because it's true. We have an extremely strong culture at the company. And when we started, I didn't know it was going to turn out that way. There's actually a story behind it that's probably too long to tell here. But the essence of it is that when we first did our deal with the venture capital groups and we were starting to hire people, we had a core group of maybe a dozen people in the company, including scientists and so forth. And I brought them all together in a room. We had our little facility we were renting with a lab. And I said, look, we're just starting out and we have a mission. We know what the mission is that I had from the beginning, which is that we develop and market therapies that restore neurological function and improve the lives of people with neurological diseases. That's the essence. But should we have a list of principles or values or principles and values that we will base our culture on? And we had a debate about it. And I actually took the position that we shouldn't do it. I said, you know, I go to other companies. I've been to other companies, big companies, little companies, and they have in the lobby, they'll have it on the wall. They'll have it in a notebook, this list of very 
elevated sounding principles and values. You know, we put people first and it's always about the patient and, and whatever else it is. I said, you know, but my experience has been that when I talk to people in the company and I say, hey, that's a terrific list of principles. I said, often I get Snickers and I say, why are you snickering? He said, well, they don't do that. And I said, I don't ever want us to be in a position where we're not living up to stuff that we're putting out for people to read and see will look like hypocrites. Better to just act the right way, I said. Mm -hmm. And we had a debate. I told a little story about it that we don't have time for, but which became part of the company's lore. I didn't know it would, but it was a parable that the moral of which was people are influenced not by what you say, but by what they see you do. And I said, we've got to do it, not just say it. You got to walk the talk. And at the end, I was overruled. Unanimously, everyone said, you know what? We think we should have a list as guidelines. But Ron, here's what we'll suggest to you. First, let's not make it ponderous. Let's make it tongue in cheek with a little bit humorous so that it means something to us, but it's not for outside consumption. And number two, we're going to take that little story you just told us with that moral. And everywhere we do have a list of this inside the company, we're going to have the punchline of the story. And I'll tell you, just to be intriguing, that the punchline is fresh fish sold here. And those four words appear online in the company and on the walls wherever we refer to our principles and values. I had no idea how viral this would become as we grew the company. It became the basis for what we do. People use these principles in their day-to-day -day speech. They'll put it in emails. They'll put it as a punchline and say, well, we've got to get such and such a product done. Find a way or make one, which is we'll find a way or make one. We have one, we don't count beans, we make beans count, which is meant to convey that, you know, capital is precious, let's not stint because you have to spend money to make money, but let's spend our money very wisely so we're getting two or three dollars worth of value out of every dollar we spend, that kind of thing. So that has helped attract the kind of people who are attracted to that kind of thing. And it perpetuates itself because are people then hire people who are themselves interested in that kind of a lifestyle, that kind of a culture, integrity, teamwork, communication. It gives us an identity. And when we moved into a new facility back about seven years ago, there were giant glass walls on one side of the building. And we have one of our most creative people in the company said, hey, how about if we etch our principles and values on the glass walls so the whole building will stand for them? And that's what we did. So if you go on our website, you see a picture of the building. If you look, you'll see that they're etched on the wall. Every company does it differently. And there are quite a few companies who have strong cultures. I think you have to find the culture that is meaningful to you if you're the leader. And if you're really passionate about it, other people who are passionate about those principles will gravitate to you and your company, and then they will grow it. They will perpetuate it. And that's what's happened. And so during these very difficult times, extremely, extremely difficult times, have people left? You betcha. Of course they have. Do they usually leave with tears in their eyes? Yes, they do. It's quite remarkable. Have some of them 
gone out in the world and then asked to come back. Yes, they do that too, which is really gratifying. The best way I know to keep people on board is to be transparent with them. I level with them and the leadership team levels with them. Whatever's going on, we tell them. We don't try to hide under a rock. We don't try to sugarcoat stuff. We tell them this is what's going on and here's how we're going to get out of it. Here's what we need to do. And we need everyone in the company to practice our values and do the right things. And we have a shot. And we'll tell them we haven't got a guarantee, but we have a really good shot and it's worth it. It's worth the effort. And that's what they respond to, I believe. And Ron, I'm sure this has been quite taxing on you as well. I'm curious how you have managed yourself through all of this and any lessons learned from that perspective. Well, thank you for that question, Rahul. It's 100% insightful and accurate. There's a tension between being the leader and tending to your own needs as a human being, because people in the company look to the leader for motivation, for solace, for comfort. When you walk into a room, everyone's looking at your face. They want to see, are you walking differently? Do you have a different expression? Are you hiding something? And so it's difficult when you walk around the company or certainly in front of a group to let them see that you're hurting or that you may be anxious. But when push comes to shove, I do let them see, not necessarily that I'm anxious because I'm rarely anxious. I can be. But I level with them and I tell them, look, am I concerned? Yes, I'm concerned. I wouldn't be human if I weren't. The single saying that has helped me the most with this is something I learned in medicine. And it's from a book called The House of God by Samuel Shem. I recommend it to anyone. It was written by a resident at Beth Israel, which means the house of God in Boston, about his internship experience. And it became the Bible of all of us who were interns and residents in that era in the 80s. Wonderful saying, which is, when you are at a code, meaning someone is dying in your emergency room or in the hospital, and you have to go in and try to revive them and resuscitate them, the first rule is take your own pulse. And that's very similar to in the airplane. If the oxygen masks drop, put yours on first, then put them on your child. If you are not tending to yourself, if you are not looking at what is really going on inside you and your concerns and your anxieties honestly and working on figuring that out first, you're no good to anyone else. What I have learned to do over the years is to compartmentalize. And if I have fears or anxieties or concerns, I acknowledge them and I put them in a corner of my brain where I can address them at my leisure. So they don't interfere with what I need to get done and how I need to help the people around me and support the people around me to get things done. And then when I have my private moments and I want to haul that out and look at it and deal with it and address it, I do that. And I do it frequently. But I've learned how to just keep that off to the side so I can be there for other people. I take my pulse first. Excellent, Ron. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us today, for staying steadfast in your pursuit of treatments for neurological disorders. And I think perhaps most importantly, being vulnerable with our listeners and sharing 
the challenges that are inherent in running a biotech. Really appreciated that today. I appreciate you having me. Thanks, Rahul. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.